Deep in History is independent and proudly listener-supported. Before we begin, I'd like to thank all of my patrons for their continued support. My historians, I salute you and thank you from the center of my being. To support the show, go to patreon.com slash deepinthehistory. It means the world to me and the show, and it keeps Deep in the History independent and ad-free. A special thank you to Cindy, who increased her pledge to an unprecedented level. Cindy, your support is peerless. Consider this a foreword. This episode is the first of what will be at least a few versus origin stories for remarkable figures. It assumes that you have the knowledge of the Roman system and class structure that we learned in the Eagles of Jupiter. If you have not yet listened to that epic, stop this podcast now and listen to it first. In addition, I apologize for the delay in the release of this episode. I suffered a series of mishaps, including losing half of the original script to a computer update and culminating in spider bites, which kept me bedridden for days and severely weakened for nearly a week. Thankfully, I've fully recovered. I intend to get back on schedule and stay current in your feeds and continue my rise to the top of the charts. One last thing, this episode involves a man whose life was forever transformed by an intimate encounter. A friendly warning that our tale-to-be has many adult themes and may not be suitable for younger listeners. Consider that as we go forward, and with that said, this forward comes to an end. The battle at the end of our tale was written exclusively to the beat of y'all been warned by the Wu-Tang Clan, so I'll throw a W up in the air and say, y'all been warned about them killer bees on the swarm, y'all been warned, it's either step or get stepped upon, y'all been warned, this gets erotic. Let's go. This is Deep in the History, and I'm your host, Arjun Hundle. Quotes The time in which he lived was no longer an age of pure and upright manners, but had already declined and yielded to the appetite for riches, excess, and luxury. Plutarch Many people have wondered if he owed his success to boldness or luck. Of his subsequent conduct, I could not speak without feelings of shame and disgust. Solaced it is entirely possible to love the youth and at once despise the man he became. Arjun While Gaius Marius was rising in Rome, fighting and clawing his way up the Cursus Honorum, a young man was facing a similar struggle. Though their situations could not have been more different, the struggle to rise in the late Republic of Rome was equally real, the stakes equally high for each of them. Marius was looked down upon as a new man by the nobility, a novus homo. But what you should know is that the upper class could be just as vicious to one of their own fallen on hard times. With the conquest of the Mediterranean world in the second and first centuries before the common era came vast wealth into the hands of a few, so that the wealth disparity even among the nobles became vast. Social bubbles formed so that those at the top began to think of themselves as something more than human, as if their lands, villas, denarii, and slaves inherited from their grandfathers made them better than those without and with obscene wealth all their needs met, every material want or desire satisfied. The only entertainment left for many was cruelty to those less fortunate, and there was nothing more these new moneyed elites loved more than bringing low someone whose blood was impossibly more noble than theirs. However, there was one such noble that was able to overcome the mockery of his own class, though for him to unlock his potential, it required him to find his other half, a partner that saw in him limitless potential, and decided that in order for her life to be complete, she needed to help this young man, who had become her one true love. 
So come dream with me as we take a journey back to the year 121 before the Common Era in ancient Rome and experience the moment that defined the rest of this young noble's life. Ready? Then let's go. You are standing on the balcony of one of the most tasteful and desired villas in all of Rome, perched atop the Esquiline Hill. The cost to maintain the gardens of the central courtyard alone would take a king's ransom. But for her it was but a pittance. You breathe in the sense of the exotic flowers imported from her homeland, Greece, at huge expense. From your vantage on the terrace you look out not only upon the magnificent garden, but you can see Rome lit by torchlight, the city walls, and the countryside beyond. A glorious sight. The sounds of the bubbling fountains in the garden, sculpted in the shape of Venus, catch your eye, and because of their likeness to her, you are flooded with recent memories. You had first met her three years ago, a wretched shadow of the man you are now, because of her. Well before you had donned your toga virilis, the white toga of manhood, your father had died. It was all a dream. It had all been a facade. He had taken huge loans in a futile effort to regain your family's status among the optimates. For though your blood was far more noble than nearly any of theirs, all that mattered was money and power. Immediately after his funeral, you were thrown out of your boyhood villa by enforcers of Optimate moneylenders. Everything you owned seized. Shunned by the people you had known for your entire life. People you thought your friends. People with the innocence of a child you had loved very much. It was only the kindness of your stepmother that saved you from literally living on the streets. She had always been kind and adored you as her own son. She had provided a small tenement apartment, a small allowance for food, and insisted to pay for tutors so that you would be educated. Beyond that, she could do nothing else because her family had disavowed her association with you, as it would lower their status among the elite. Those years had been difficult. Your only joy were the hours upon hours you spent learning. Your days spent mastering the concepts of Greek philosophy and training with Gladius and Shield, and your nights spent studying the military campaigns of the great generals of history by torchlight. Sometimes you would fall asleep and dream that you were Hannibal commanding the forces of mighty Carthage, or the great Scipio Africanus brilliantly leading his mighty legions, exhilarating and so real. Yet you would always wake to find yourself in your tiny room. Your loneliness would resume, and your insecurities begin to consume you anew. As you left boyhood and grew into a man, plebeian women would often remark on how handsome you were. Yet when you stared at your reflection, you couldn't see it. Thus you always thought that they were being polite or secretly mocking you. When you would debate philosophy or speak about politics, people would wonder at how vast your knowledge was and the intelligent way in which you delivered your remarks. Again, you thought they were just being polite. You could not see what they saw in you. You just felt empty, hollow, worthless. On your seventeenth birthday, a friend from childhood had invited you to a party held in this very villa. Some noble brat had rented it, for it was the ultimate status symbol for a young optimate to be entertained by her. You'd always hated attending events like that, watching the optimate youth smile to your face, burst into laughter when you moved away, and fall silent when you approached. They made you feel ever more empty, worthless, less than. Still, not wishing to offend one of the few noble friends you had left, you had accepted. At the party, after enduring the usual laughter, mocking smiles, and half-whispered jokes at your expense, you had found yourself in the triclinium, the long, opulent dining room, 
with dozens of groups of three dining loungers centered on a round table piled high with delicacies to eat. Each trio of couches was attended by a beautiful slave, both male and female, each more exquisite than the next, dressed in garish costumes that you were sure were the tasteless idea of the host of the party, which drew your eyes to him. You didn't know him personally, some noble client of the powerful Casili Metelli clan, but you know his type spoiled, rich, arrogant, and completely ignorant of what they were. The only people they met were just like them, people who were far more likely to have their tutors, mostly purchased Greek slaves who had been scholars in their homeland, beaten rather than acquire their wisdom. In addition to all their faults, their lack of knowledge of anything interesting made them extremely boring company. The slave attending the brat dropped a steady stream of berries into his mouth when he was not burping or gulping down wine. Not any berries, but those damn spotted mulberries from Greece, an exotic treat for the rich. Their unique red spots, called Sulla, are how you got your nickname. The red spots on your face that you had developed during puberty had remained and grown darker. They called you Sulla, so that in even saying your name, they were mocking you. Your gaze caught his, and he yelled out with his drunken, vicious voice, Tell us about your spots, Sulla and when you failed to answer, he burst out laughing, and the entire room followed his lead. The blood of your ancestors boiled in your veins, and for an instant you thought of pulling out your dagger and challenging him for daring to insult the Cornelii, your family, through you. But that void inside, that lack of self-worth that existed where your courage should have been, stayed your hand. So you sat there and did nothing, feeling the spots on your face grow darker as you reddened in shame. Accepting your place in the world and contemplating leaving while you stared into your wine cup. You first experienced her scent, sweet and sharp like lavender. You next experienced her touch as she gently placed her fingers on your chin and raised your bent head. At once electric like a bolt of lightning, yet softer than the finest Egyptian cotton. You looked up directly into her eyes. At once blue, gray, green, churning like the depths of Neptune's sea, flecked with a multitude of light shades of darker colors, impossibly complex, as if trying to understand them would be to comprehend all the constellations thrown into the night sky by the gods. You had once felt calm, and in the glory of her gaze for the first time in your adult life, you felt confident. It was strange, yet glorious. As you began to take in the delicate yet sharp features of her face, this foreign, confident version of yourself asked with disbelief, Venus? She let forth a soft and gentle laugh and said, After a fashion, I am Nicopolis. This is my home. Realization of who she is floods you. Of course she looked like Venus. Every statue carved of the goddess's face since she had arrived in Rome so many years ago had been based on her. She was the companion of consuls, visiting foreign kings, and only the most rich and powerful senators. They would spend fortunes for just one evening of her company. It had only been recently that you'd heard she had turned down an offer of a palace and one hundred talents of gold from old King Mekipsa of Numidia, if only she agreed to be his alone. The very party you were attending was ruinously expensive for nearly anyone. Also these nobles could say that they had dined in her presence. Nicopolis, the most beautiful and famous courtesan in the world, and not only did she speak to you, she turned your face side to side, as if studying it. I like your spots, 
They suit you, Sulla. Yet when she spoke the name you hated, it sounded like a compliment, a term of endearment. May I sit with you for a moment? You immediately had sat up and made room for her on your divan. She then told you a strange story from her homeland, Greece. Her melodic voice had you entranced, pulling you in, making you experience the tale. It was of a young prince, still a boy, whose family had lost everything in war and were forced out of their city. Years later, the prince, now grown to a man, met a girl in a village in the countryside. The girl loved him because he was intelligent and devastatingly handsome. Yet no matter how she tried, she could not make him see himself the way she saw him. He was consumed by thoughts of the past. And by that time, no matter how much she loved him, nothing could fill the emptiness, the void inside of him. One day the despair became too much for him to bear and he went to the tallest cliff on the coast and hurled himself on the rocks far below. The girl, who had lost her true love, wandered the earth, knowing that she was doomed never to experience it again. Nicopolis stood up and turned towards you, her blonde hair reflecting the torchlight in a rainbow of hues. She once again took your chin in her fingers and said, Remember this, in order for anyone to perceive you as perfect, you must first learn to master your imperfections for they are what make you unique. You then noticed that the index finger of her other hand was running down a long scar along the jawline of her exquisite face. You had not noticed it before, but it was as if it was an ornament enhancing her beauty rather than marring it. As she excused herself to attend to her guest, she told you that you may call on her whenever you wished, and that perhaps next time you would share some of your wisdom with her. And just like that, she vanished into her home. You noticed that all the nobles were staring at you, clearly jealous, and the soft tingle that remained where she had touched your skin made it seem as if you had indeed just been touched by Venus. Over the coming weeks, months, and years, you spent countless hours together, enjoying in-depth discussions about politics, philosophy, and art. You came to realize that the only thing more beautiful than her body was her mind, through her vast network of contacts, Nicopolis introduced you to plebeian elements of society that you never knew existed, or could have never mingled with freely as an optimate, however lowly. You met actors who taught you how to project your voice and show different emotions on command, Lenista who allowed you to train for war with their gladiators, and freed slaves, some of whom had been men of great military status, some scholars, or some great orators in their homelands. You absorbed everything you could from them. As you grew closer, Nicopolis also let you into her mind and let you learn how she amassed such a colossal fortune. Not only was she paid huge sums for her time, but from the powerful men of Rome she kept company with, she learned their thoughts, plans, and troubles. When a censor would say that a massive infrastructure was being planned, she would learn where and use agents to acquire the lands around it, sometimes tripling its value in mere days and when a consul would inform her of a coming supply shortage, she would stockpile the goods and again through agents sell it at a premium. By using cat's paws from her friends in the lower classes, who she paid handsomely, no one ever knew she was involved. She was cunning and brilliant, a woman who had made herself powerful in a world completely dominated by men, and she wasn't even a Roman citizen, a task you would have thought impossible. Sometimes you would talk late into the night and fall asleep on your respective divans in the garden under the stars. Nicopolis became your best friend and you would do anything for her. 
yet she never asked a thing of you. When your stepmother, bless her eternal soul, defied her family and left you a vast estate, for the first time in your life you were no longer poor. Nicopolis showed you how to employ your newfound wealth, how to generously give out small loans to worthy people, no matter how humble, and refuse payment in exchange for their gratitude and future favors. This started paying off immediately as they began to bring you news and gossip from the streets to the elites. You were suddenly very well informed, and this information empowered you. Now fully confident in yourself for the first time, whenever an optimate brat tried to insult you, you cut them viciously with your dry wit, and often after, you would flip them to your side with humor. Your rise had begun, and you owed it all to her. To say you loved her would be an understatement. To say she meant the world to you would be like saying a single speck of sand was an entire beach. Yet you never dared tell her for fear of revealing the sheer power of your feelings would drive her away. You were best friends, and so you thought it would remain. Now, here, in her villa, on her grand balcony outside of her bedchamber, she places an arm over your shoulders. The electric tingle from the first time she touched you is as alive now as it was three years ago. She points at the moon and makes a triangle with her fingers, showing the astral virgins of Luna, Jupiter, and Saturn. Standing here now with Nicopolis's arm around you, in the light of the moon is the greatest moment of your life. And in your mind, you say a prayer to Jupiter Optimus Maximus that the memory be crystallized forever so that you can feel it again at will. Come, she says, as she turns and glides into her bedroom. Her silvery blonde hair runs down her back in two thick gallic braids that ran the length of her head with wisps of her hair left out from her bangs, at once civilized and oh so wild. As she nears her bed, she stops and turns to face you. She raises her arm behind the neck, pulling a single string, and with that, her thin shimmering gown flows down her body and falls, making a series of soft clicks as the jewels woven into the fabric make contact with the marble floor. Her golden skin, which has clearly been oiled and cared for years, glows in the torchlight. Unable to help yourself, your eyes move down her body, faster than you would like, for you wish to truly take her in. Every curve, every contour, beauty personified, Venus. What do you see, my dear Sulla? Really look. For the next few seconds, your eyes are simply overwhelmed by her physical perfection. And then, you see them. Scars. Old scars. Thin, some longer than others. Someone had hurt her. Rage fills you as you're about to ask who had done this ready to retrieve your gladius and slay the optimate bastard who dared to touch your best friend, your Nicopolis. Sulla, what do you see? Her gentle voice soothes your rage long enough for you to begin to think again. Posing riddles to one another was one of your favorite pastimes. Yet with this one, she has you confounded. Think. You go over everything you know of her past. She came to Rome as a young woman of no more than twenty years from Greece. She had quickly risen to the top to be the queen of all courtesans. One of her unparalleled beauty would have been instantly reserved for the optimates and only the richest men. She was not a Roman citizen, and as a provincial sex worker would have had almost no standing in the law. You know how cruel and casually sadistic men could be in general to women, and the ultra-powerful optimates she would have to attend to would have treated her as a plaything to do as they wished. 
Someone had done extreme violence to her for their own perverted notion of pleasure, yet she had survived it. She had endured and went on to thrive. These were not the scars of a helpless woman. These were the scars of a warrior that had used the assets the gods had given her to fight her way to the top of Roman society. Realization hits you, and you look into her eyes. Yes, she says, my body is my weapon, a weapon I used to conquer the Optimates, so that they now beg and pay fortunes just to be in my presence, and are always at my beck and call. Remove your toga. You don't feel shy for the first time in your life. You want her to see you, the way she just shared her true self with you. You pull the cloth from your shoulder and swiftly unwrap it enough that it falls to the floor. She studies you, and because it is her, the last remnants of the walls of self-doubt and insecurity that have been part of you since you were a boy crumble. The glance from her eyes moving up and down your body are like beams of light vanquishing the last traces of your past life from you, and you can feel yourself as you truly are for the first time. I see your long hours of difficult training with the gladiators have done wonders for you. You look down at your body and have to admit to yourself that she is right. Your body has become chiseled muscle as if it had been sculpted out of marble and nearly as hard. You are beautiful, my Sulla. You can conquer the Optimates the way I did. Seduction is a powerful tool. But before I show you how, I want to tell you something. Do you recall the story of the prince I told you the night we first met? You nod, understanding, dawning. I was the young girl doomed to walk this world without ever truly loving anyone else ever again. Until you. I saw him in your eyes that night, my broken prince, with so much potential but no idea of how to escape the prison of your own mind. That is why I helped you, groomed you, made you see who you are, in freeing you from the limitations you had placed on yourself over these past years, I have fallen in love with you. I was a silly young girl who thought she knew true love. I was wrong. You showed me that. I love you, Sulla. Before you give your body to the woman of the elite, I want to be your first. You move and embrace her. You feel the warmth of her soft skin against yours. You breathe in her scent, and she yours. Your combined passion takes control, and he seems to simply glide onto her soft bed. You kiss her passionately, and when your tongues touch for the first time, and you experience her taste, you know you will be forever addicted. Nicopolis moans and turns her head, as if directing you to explore her face with your lips. You gently bite her soft earlobe and begin kissing her neck. As if on their own accord, your strong hands begin to explore her body. You take your time as you kiss, caress, and gently bite your way down her chest and lose yourself on her firm and ample breasts. Soon you are charting your course down her stomach and you spread her legs. You explore further, finding yourself at her soft inner thighs and then savor her secret wetness. Soon, unable to contain yourself a moment longer, you realign your face with hers and at the instant you truly become one her eyes open wide, looking directly into yours. The constellation of the flecks that always had confounded you suddenly make perfect sense, and you lose yourself in their impossible depths as your souls mate. Hours later. Bliss. Nicopolis's head is laying directly over your heart, and she is moving her nails across your chest. The scent of her hair, a constant intoxication. 
Her head moves slightly and you look down only to find yourself getting lost in the depths of her sea blue eyes again. I heard a tale about you from a beggar in the Sabura. She said that when you were a babe in the arms of your nurse, a woman approached you both in the street and looked at you closely. She then named you Felix, saying that you were touched by the goddess Fortuna and that you would have her favor for the rest of your life. Luck eternal. Of course you knew the story. Your nurse had told it to you when you were a boy. You had hated the name because you had never felt lucky or fortunate. The nurse had passed away many years ago, and you had never told another soul. You look at her quizzically. Yes, the beggar was that woman, though she is a beggar no longer. I gave her enough denarii for her to live her life in luxury for the rest of her days. How could I not? She has given me the only name by which I will call you from now on when we are alone together. My Felix, promise me that when you have achieved all you desire in this world, you will take that name as your own. You smile and nod. For the first time in your life, you actually feel fortunate, lucky, because Nicopolis is by your side. You have found your other half. Every empty part of your soul is now full, bursting. The wonderful feeling overwhelms you, and you feel renewed and powerful. You use your body to turn Nicopolis onto her back to become one with her once again. Let's give the soulmates their privacy, allow their feeling of true love to remain as they slowly fade away. Come back to deep into history and hear me say, this is the tale of the rise of a lover and a fighter, the tale of a young man who would reach for his destiny by mastering every skill he acquired, the saga of the rise of one of the greatest warriors in all of history who would come to dominate Rome. The origin of the feud that would bring the Republic to its knees and leave it ripe to fall to the Empire. Sulla versus Rome, Sulla versus Bocchus, Sulla versus Jugurtha. The epic tale of Marius versus Sulla begins. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and let your mind float on my voice as we go deep into the second century before the Common Era and witness the rise of Nicopolis's Felix. Versus Origins, so seductive. Welcome. Since we just experienced the essence of his life, I'll give the briefest recap before we continue. Lucius Cornelius Sulla was born in 138 BCE, a member of an impoverished line of the Cornelii, one of the most storied and ancient noble families in all of Roman history. They could trace their lineage back to the founding families of the Republic. As a boy, he lived a poor and rather wretched existence in a tenement apartment provided for him by his adoring stepmother. She also sent him the best tutor she could find. He excelled at learning Roman traditions, history, and Greek philosophy. He was not at all bookish, for he was also excellent at training with Scutum and Gladius. He grew up in the late Republic, where the Optimates would treat one of their own fallen on hard times, just as they would the lowliest pleb which meant with constant derision and snobbery. After becoming one with Nicopolis, she began introducing him to a cast of characters from different walks of life, offering him people he could learn from and be of aid to him in the future. At first, these were mainly plebs, freedmen, and foreigners, lawyers, traders, former warriors from other cultures, theologists, philosophers, lenista, actors, and playwrights. For context, actors were considered the lowest form of life by the elite. In the light of Nicopolis' love, Sulla discovered that he had a magnetic personality. He would speak to each individual for hours, learning and debating. 
Nearly all of them came to love this humble noble, unlike anyone they had ever met before. Even nobles who had fallen on hard times would be arrogant, very class-conscious, and always make sure that anyone under them in the social order knew their place. Sulla was different. He embraced each person, however low of station, in true friendship. Sulla, feeling confident to be himself for the first time in his life, turned these people into his devotees. This scandalized the nobility of Rome. They would never be seen in public with people who were in their eyes low-born scum. He began to enjoy nights out in public, something he had rarely been able to do with having such limited means. However, Nicopolis opened up an entire new world for the young nobleman. The streets of Rome at night could be a dangerous place. So like any up-and-coming player, Sulla moved with the crew. Besides Nicopolis, there were three constant companions. An inner circle. Let's meet these undesirables, shall we? Rossius, a comedian with a brilliant mind. His favorite target was the nobility and the system itself. Considered one of the wittiest men in Rome, Sulla loved him as one of the few men who could debate him to a stalemate. Sorex, the arch-mime, a master of expression with his face and body, capable of holding facial contortions for long periods, literally changing how he looked completely. Metrobius, a very famous actor who instructed young Sulla on how to project his voice and maintain a commanding presence at all times. In addition, his entourage, which at times is said to have numbered up to 50 people, included former gladiators, ex-slaves, gamblers, plebeian merchants, artists, craftsmen, mercenaries, felons, and reputed assassins. All of these very different people were bonded together by a mutual love of young Sulla. This constantly changing ensemble cast drew attention, and with shocked gasps, soon all of the nobility were talking about Sulla's antics. Sulla had a sharp mind, able to converse on seemingly any subject intelligently, and when he could not, he would listen and learn with avid attention. Even his enemies remarked that he possessed a unique ability. He could be in full drunken revelry with his friends, yet instantly become all business if a matter required his attention and then go back directly to his party. His first clients came from this group of friends. He began to train under the best lanistas with their gladiators. He learned the ways of the lower classes and how they perceived the system and their lot in life. From the foreigners he learned of the world and practiced his Greek with them. He even wrote a play that received some critical praise. During this time his stepmother passed away and left him a considerable fortune, and Nicopolis showed him how to maximize his gain by investing it in people how to be a Patronus. However, his time with his beloved was all too short. Slightly more than a year after their romantic relationship began, she was taken away from him forever. A pestilence swept through Rome, known only as the creeping sickness, and alas, she succumbed to it. The most beautiful woman in Rome, the light of his life, his other half, had passed on to what comes next. Sulla was devastated. The loss of the two closest women in his life Women who he had loved and admired, given himself to in a way that made him so emotionally vulnerable, broke something in him. As we will see, with the possible exception of his daughter-to-be, he never allowed himself to truly love another woman again. Nicopolis left him everything, her villa, a vast fortune, and an utterly broken heart. Young Sulla was now immensely rich, and he became the Patronus of the underbelly of Rome. After a time of mourning, Sulla used everything he had learned of Nicopolis's rise 
and executed a very hot cold war on the optimates of Rome without them ever realizing what hit them until it was far too late. A war fought in the boudoirs of patrician widows. Sulla was now a handsome man, a young Robert Redford in a toga, if you will, with a body sculpted through countless hours of hard training. Nicopolis had destroyed his insecurities, the mental barriers on our potential that circumstances so often place on us. And he now planned to dominate the optimates exactly the same way she did. He specifically targeted the richest widows of the most noble families. These women were expected and forced by tradition to be at least publicly chaste and dutiful. Upholding the ideal of Roman womanhood, which meant obeying their paterfamilias and female virtus. More often than not, they had been in an arranged marriage and had never known true love. Sulla changed that. When he was alone with them, he showed them a passion they had never known before. He gave them adoration, thrills, and pleasure. And soon the princesses of Rome would openly talk in front of their men of having heard of Sulla's skill with his, well, let's say Gladius. The gossip of his prowess in the bedroom spread, so that after his first few conquests, he had the noble woman of Rome lining up to start a love affair with him. And soon, some of these widows began leaving their fortunes to him in event of their deaths. As he thrilled them by night, Sulla spent his days in what was his true target. Their studiums, studies and libraries, and the villas of the elite of Rome. They contained the scrolls, journals, and personal thoughts of the leaders of the Republic over the course of its history. He gained access to intimate details of the military campaigns that had won Rome the Mediterranean world. He absorbed everything, every detail about how to lead and maintain a legion, logistics, strategic planning, battlefield tactics against every foe Rome had ever faced. More, he was able to see their points of view from every rank they held as they rose through the Cursus Honorum priceless knowledge that he would debate with his friends and sharpen into wisdom. During these years, his mid-twenties, he grew ever closer with Metrobius. They were constant companions and most likely became lovers. The two were nearly always together. Metrobius, though much older than Sulla, was so fair to look upon and had such delicate features that when he would dress as a woman, as he often did, he would turn every head in the room. Attitudes in the late Republic towards bi and homosexuality varied very much by class. However, in many ways, it was not viewed as a vice, but seen as a feat, considered a Greek way of life, in disharmony with Roman virtus. If a pleb took care of his family, produced children, and was considered a dutiful husband, it was overlooked as long as he used discretion so that his dignitas remained intact, and he did not bring dishonor to his family. For the rich nobles, like our young Sulla, well, the rich play by different rules, don't they? No one is said to have ever known Sulla's mind, his inner thoughts, with the exception of Nicopolis and then Metrobius, who would become his companion and partner, managing his affairs in Rome when he was not there to fulfill them for the rest of his life. You could consider our young Sulla something of a sexual radical, always continuing his affairs with an ever-growing assortment of noblewomen. Sulla gave these reserved and very proper Roman princesses the thrill of their lives when he was with them, but when he wasn't, he did as he pleased. In that context, young Sulla was a sexual liberator, opening up worlds of delights to his lovers. For he learned how to make love under the guidance of Nicopolis, his soulmate. Giving her, the only woman he ever loved, pleasure made him feel whole. And perhaps, just perhaps, with this string of lurid affairs, 
for a few fleeting seconds he could convince himself he was with Nicopolis again. He was in fact honoring her by conquering the Optimates in exactly the same way she did. And as he acquired ever more wisdom from those priceless histories, he was slowly coming to realize that he could be greater than any general in the storied history of the Republic. Sulla as Patronus operated just as unconventionally. He was not a political power, in fact he had yet to attempt to rise in the Cursus Honorum. Instead he was rich and had nearly unlimited funds because even the widows of Rome that didn't leave him their fortunes opened their purses for him, showering him with denarii, and he didn't even have to ask for it. Through his lovers he had developed a network of Roman princesses almost sophisticated and vast as Julia Maria's, which meant he could pull some strings for his clients. However, the main benefit as Sulla as your Patronus was his generosity. He gave out vast sums in loans, all of which turned into gifts when you came to repay him. Instead, Sulla said he was sure that if he called upon you one day, and that day may never come, he was sure you would return the favor. This made him wildly popular, with plebs begging to become his clients. He took on plebs, freedmen, and even equestrians began to come to him. But Sulla knew there was only one way to earn respect, and thus access to the men that controlled the Republic for him, the warrior's path up the Cursus Honorum. The reason he had to pursue this route was that the Optimates, especially the men, did not like Sulla at all. No Patronus high up in the power structure wanted anything to do with him, saying he lacked dignitas, and hypocritically that he did not follow most maiorum. As if in the late Republic they themselves did not constantly bend rules and norms if it gave them the slightest advantage. Still the women of the nobility loved him, and he tried many times to win the favor of their men, and was always met with scorn, contempt, and let's be honest, jealousy. Sulla lived his life like the equivalent of a Roman rock star. Men hated how much attention and adoration he got from women. One optimate he approached for an alliance said to his face, How can you be an honest man who since the death of a father who left you nothing have become so rich? And then spat at his feet. Thus as the year 107 BCE approached, young Sulla knew himself to be ready. He had trained his body, ready for the rigors of physical combat. He had trained his mind, cultivating a near encyclopedic knowledge of strategic and tactical thinking and honing them in deep discussions with his friends. He had built his client network to such an extent that he commanded votes to win in an election, and crucially had the money to bribe the elector so that he could run for a senior rank and make up for lost time. Keep in mind Sulla was 30 years old, thus a decade behind everyone of his age in the Cursus Honorum, so he paid anyone he needed to bend the rules, ran in the election of 107 BCE, and with his huge popularity easily won the rank of military quester, skipping the required ten years of military service as a military tribune. This was the same election in which Gaius Marius won his first consulship. Sulla had of course heard of Gaius Marius's actions in the ambush at the Methul River that we experienced in the Eagles of Jupiter, how after an entire day of constant battle he had rallied two thousand utterly spent legionaries and led them on a charge that not only saved Consul Metellus's life, but the entire army. The plebs and equestrians he knew spoke of Gaius Marius as a Roman Achilles, a champion to rally around in the continuing class war, and he had just been given Imperium to end the war in Numidia, 
and bring back Jugurtha, dead or alive, in chains to face the justice of the Senate and people. There was no better man to serve under, to learn from, a man whose entire life had been devoted to war and politically battling the same optimates that Sulla despised in Rome. So again he bribed the right people to ensure he would be assigned quester to the legions of Consul Gaius Marius. The closest modern rank equivalent would very roughly be lieutenant colonel. Questers could lead large groups of men in battle, and they also could act as the legion's paymasters. A very senior rank, and Sulla had never fought in a battle. He had the street knowledge, he had the wisdom of the scrolls, he had the physical training, he had learned to lead men as Patronus, but none of that would mean anything if he failed to put all the pieces together and become the very embodiment of Vertus, a Roman warrior. Sulla carried Nicopolis with him in his heart, and he never doubted that he would prove himself on the battlefield without gambling with the lives of his men, a responsibility he took very seriously. Yet he was completely inexperienced, an epic roll of the dice. The legendary first meeting of Marius and Sulla unfolded thusly. It happened on the Campus Martius, the field of the war god, just outside the walls of Rome, where the consul was assembling his legions. These legions were different, made nearly entirely of plebeian volunteers from Rome itself. For remember, Consul Gaius Marius had had the Senate lift the property requirement. These legions were full of poor men, eager to earn riches and land. As Sulla marched through the mustering legion camp, he would have seen motivated citizens being run through marching drills and weapons training, new military tribunes being instructed how to lead by more experienced officers. He found the consul directing the senior officers on exactly how he expected them to perform their duties, letting them get a glimpse of his personality and establishing a rapport with them. The meeting was ending, so the officers saluted their consul and moved out. Sulla approached and stood at attention and saluted smartly, then gave Marius his most dazzling smile. The Republic's greatest warrior sized up the newly minted quaestor. Gaius Marius was the most famous man in Rome, but he knew exactly who he was looking at, for Sulla was infamous. He had, of course, heard the lurid gossip the scandalous exploits of the gladius of the Sabura had inspired from his beloved wife Julia Maria. Sulla left shock and scandal wherever he went, but they were at the expense of the Optimates, Marius's enemies. I'm sure Julia and Gaius shared more than a few laughs at the deeds of this walking tabloid. Still, he was a Cornelii, and it offended Marius greatly that he had toiled in battle for the Republic for a decade as a military tribune fighting, killing, and scraping his way up the Cursus Honorum. This new quaestor had bought his position. The historical consensus is what Marius did next was meant as an insult. However, we have come to know the man. He may well have been disgusted by the handsome nobleman who had bribed his way into high rank in his legions, but he was also fair when it served his purposes. Thus I submit that it was at once an insult and an opportunity for Sulla to prove himself because as consul, Marius could have simply transferred him and got a different quaestor to replace him. So Marius left him outside of Rome to wait for the auxiliary cavalry to arrive from across the allied cities of Italy, while he sailed to Africa with his new legions. This would take time, months in fact, as the war against Jugurtha and a series of devastating defeats north of the Alps had taken a ruinous toll on the number of horses and riders that the Republic had available meaning these were new levies of young and inexperienced horsemen. 
Sulla was charged with rallying them into support cavalry for the African legions. As they began arriving in small groups from the depleted allied cities of Italy, the quaestor consulted his vast store of knowledge of the great cavalry commanders of antiquity that he had studied his entire adult life. He organized them into units, put them through rigorous drills so that the men and horses would get used to acting together. If a unit performed poorly, Sulla would ride with them himself until they were among his best. His years among the plebs and freedmen of Rome allowed him to talk to his men on their terms. He did not appear as an arrogant optimate, but rather as one of them. He led by example and shared their hardships, not living in a lavish command tent, but slept as his men did, on pallets near their mounts so they could saddle them at a moment's notice in case of an emergency. By the time all had arrived, Sulla had drilled them into some of the finest light cavalry of the late Republic. They were equipped with a rounded rectangular cavalry shield that could protect both rider and part of their mount. Their primary weapon was a spear, which was held as a lance for charges. A secondary weapon, a long cavalry saber called a spatha, used for melee combat with other cavalry, and designed to bring down enemies fleeing the battlefield on foot. Most were lightly armored in leather tunics, though it is possible at least some wore light ringmail. By the time he was done training him, they were his men. They loved their quaestor, and though none of them had faced an enemy in battle, they would follow Sulla to the depths of Hades. He invested himself fully in the well-being of his men and their horses, taking time to learn their names, where they were from, their wants and desires. If a man needed help, a sick relative, or a farmer about to be seized by moneylenders, Sulla would provide funds or advice, as with his clients, never asking for repayment. The truth was that he needed them to fulfill his destiny. So he created what every classical hero had, a unit as skilled in combat as he was. Alexander had his companions, the eagle of Epirus had his wind, and quaestor Lucius Cornelius Sulla, the gladius of the Sabura, had his lancers. And as all three thousand of them boarded their transports to Africa, Nicopolis's Felix was ready to take it all. Total war begins after this. I hope you are enjoying this episode. I know I enjoy creating them for you, and could really use your help to keep Deep Into History independent and thriving. Go to patreon.com slash history and pledge your support. It's just 10 cents a day and you'll get to experience the first crossover episode of Versus. You see, while Rome had sent its best warriors to wage war in Africa, a threat came from the far north. It started as tales of untold numbers of barbarians appearing at the edge of the known world and devouring all the small tribes in their path. A lone, blood-drenched German warrior made his way south to a legionary outpost on the frontier. Yet just as he arrived, he succumbed to his wounds, whispering about witches performing mass human sacrifices and bathing in blood. Rome sent scouts to investigate, and none of them returned. Legions were dispatched, only to disappear as if they had never existed, for Rome had no idea of the sheer number and warrior prowess of the Cimbri and Teutonis. Join me for a journey in the dark forest beyond the Alps and experience a series of strange events that led to Rome's worst defeat since the Republic was brought to its knees by Hannibal at the Battle of Cannae. Bloodthirsty witches, a sea of barbarians, a stolen treasure that belonged to a denizen of Olympus, a Roman's greed, all leading to the catastrophic Battle of Arausio, the epic prelude to the Cimbrian War, and a tale I call The Curse of Apollo's Gold. Coming soon, only on Patreon. Now back to 
versus origins. So seductive. Sulla's fleet made landfall in Africa, the glorious port city of Utica. We will experience all that transpired in his absence, with Gaius Marius in command of the legions of Africa, when the Eagles of Jupiter continues next episode. The quaestor learned that the campaign had gone well. However, in order to reach the legions, he and the lancers would have to ride across most of Numidia. Consulting with the officers of the garrison in the city, he studied maps, sought advice, and plotted his course. Not far from the river Molucca, the border between Mauritania and Numidia, the consul's legions were besieging a fortress. No ordinary fortress, but a devilishly contrived rectangle of death. For this fortress was in fact a giant vault that held the bulk of Jugurtha's treasury, oceans of gold. It was here in the far west of Numidia that Sulla and his lancers met the legions. Marius was immediately impressed when Sulla dropped the head of nine of Jugurtha's envoys and spies that were seeking information and looking to foment uprisings and revolt in the vast swath of Numidia that the consul's legions had conquered. Sulla's lancers had seen first blood, for they had crossed a war zone, but they were not yet battle-tested. Marius, now with light cavalry for the first time in a year, had Sulla arranged patrols in force in the surrounding countryside, denying Jugurtha intelligence. While in camp, much to Marius's surprise, Sulla took to the hardships of army life as if he had been born to it. Sulla became popular with the men of all the legions, his lancers always letting him know if a legionary required a favor, and Sulla quickly obliging, growing his network of friends. He did so suavely, careful never to poach anyone who was a client of Gaius Marius. We know almost nothing of Sulla's direct actions, but we do know that Jugurtha did not come to relieve his fortress, which most likely means he did not have enough information with which to formulate an attack. Thus the lancers performed their duty well. Instead, with the fog of war in place, Jugurtha had bribed the advisers of the court of his in-law, King Bocchus of Mauritania, into convincing the king to join him in an attack on the Romans pinned down at the vault promising the king the western third of Numidia in return for his aid, as well as an obscene amount of gold. Thus King Bocchus broke his word to Rome to stay neutral, and marshaled his huge army, and marched. The vault at Maluca held against every assault, and Marius was about to look like a fool for trying to take the impregnable citadel. However, something strange occurred when an auxiliary infantryman who had acquired a taste for African snails left the siege line to procure some but we'll save that tale for when the Eagles of Jupiter continues. The fortress fell, and the vast bulk of Jugurtha's gold was in the hands of the other apprentice of Scipio Emilianus. It was late in the year 106 BCE, the campaign season nearly over, and the legions were laden with gold and treasure. Consul Marius decided to make for the occupied city of Serta and for his legions to settle in for the winter months. When he learned that the vault at Molucca had fallen, Jugurtha, desperate to get back his gold, altered course and decided to take his now vast army, including the army of Mauritania, a force approaching 100,000, and retrieve what was his. The hunt for the legions was on, and the battle of the apprentices of Scipio Emilianus was about to begin. Consul Gaius Marius had three legions and their companion Alas, a force of roughly 32,000 men, nearly all plebs. Recall that the land requirement to join the legions had been dropped because of the lack of available troops. An army of landless plebs, the poor of Rome. To the optimates, they were the legions made from the scum and riffraff of Rome. 
As optimate as that attitude sounds, they were not entirely wrong. In the ancient world, much like now, land was wealth, everything. Even the poorest farmers in the countryside were far better off than a landless pleb living in the huge city of Rome. And the underbelly was a dangerous place, with many thugs, thieves, assassins, and enforcers for various moneylenders and patronus. These men did not take up these nefarious professions by choice, but because it was their only option in the calcified class structure of Rome. Earning a modest wage, with a chance for spoils, loot, and land of their own to farm, they jumped at the opportunity to join the legions, in droves. Marius had drilled the men of his legions into disciplined killing machines, leading by example, encouraging bravery. As we have noted at the beginning of his campaign, he was desperately low on horses. So with those few available to him, he created a very competent corps of scouts, and used all the rest to form his own personal bodyguard. Based on Scipio Aemilianus's squadron of friends, heavy shock cavalry, Marius was the kind of general that led from the front and was an exceptional warrior, and the only way to gain the honor of serving as a companion of the consul was to show exceptional bravery and disciplined savagery on the battlefield or in the walls of a town they were storming. These weren't his squadron of friends, they were his killers. 499 shock troops that rode with and protected Marius at all times. They were the hammer to the legion's anvil. Now I could just tell you what happened during the titanic second battle of Serta. But this is deep into history and you're with your friend and lore master Arjun. And you know that means you are going to experience it. The ultimate battle of the Jugurthine War that poets would come to call the Knights of the Bandits unfolded nearly exactly like this. Late November, 106 BCE, somewhere in the deserts of West Numidia. Day 1, 100 miles to Serta, Sanctuary. Consul Gaius Marius has arrayed his legions on the march in two long and relatively thin lines, between them their supplies, and several dozen large carts pulled by oxen overflowing with Jugurtha's gold, the loot and spoils from the vault at Moluca so vast that he had been forced to thin his lines and extend the line of march into one very long column. His scouts were far afield, with Quester Sulla's excellent light cavalry patrolling the horizon. Marius kept his bodyguard of five hundred cavalry with him, his killers, staying with the column, ready to respond with shocking violence if anyone were to attack his legions. He kept his men at full alert, having warned them to be ready for anything, because he knew Jugurtha would come. He was finished without his gold. He had to come. Long ago at Numantia the two had been friends, brothers in arms that had earned their places at the side of their general, and he had respect for the cunning of the sworn brother of Scipio Aemilianus. The day passed, completely uneventful. The sun was setting. It would be dark in an hour. Just as Marius was about to order that camp be made for the night, Sulla's light cavalry patrols came galloping in from all points of the compass, quickly followed by the legionary scouts. Something was very wrong. Then beyond them, filling the low horizon, an encircling dust cloud that could only be made by tens of thousands of horses, a colossal enemy cavalry raid was imminent. In mere moments, with Sulla's cavalry still a mile away, the horizon became full of dark shapes and soon he could make out the even darker shapes of their black-robed riders, at least 30,000 of them galloping in at full speed. There was no time to organize a battle line. 
Instead, when Sulla rode up, his horse lathered in sweat, Marius ordered him to disperse his lancers among the legionaries, and then the consul and his bodyguard rode straight at a single point in the encirclement, for the ambush was successful, putting his legions on the defensive. Gaius Marius hated losing the initiative in battle, so he trusted in the training and discipline he had instilled in his men, and with his bodyguard punched a hole out of the trap, seemingly fleeing the battlefield. Moments later, the enemy was attacking all over and around the column. These were King Bocchus's Mauritanian cavalry, armored in light mail, covered by black robes, wielding spears and sabers. Their fighting style was completely alien to the Romans, attacking in waves from different directions, dropping heavy spearmen from the backs of their mounts and fighting alongside them, so that the legionaries in the lines would be in combat with a man in one moment, and a biting kicking horse with a saber-wielding warrior atop screaming travel battle cries in the next. The enemy would then retreat into the encroaching darkness, only to return moments later with more infantry so that the legionaries were being swarmed. The result of these waves was that some parts of the column were in overwhelming fighting with little or no combat in other parts, but they were unable to assist their comrades without exposing the treasure they were guarding. Night was quickly coming upon them, combined with a huge dust cloud it was becoming impossible to know what was happening more than a few dozen paces away. These unorthodox tactics may well have worked on less disciplined legions under an inferior commander. However, Quester Sulla passed on the consul's orders to the military tribunes and centurions, and they executed them perfectly. Their objective was to protect their supplies and Jugurtha's treasure. So they concentrated the carts and pack animals together at regular intervals down the line, surrounded first by a circle of ranged auxiliaries. Then legionaries formed circles of men, mixed with Sulla's lancers, around each. The slingers and archers in the inner circles fired over the heads of the legionaries locked in melee combat. The Mauritanians made a series of bonfires set between each circle, to rob the legionaries of their night vision and so that they in turn could see their prey as they executed their wild charges in the blackness on the desert plain. Yet these fires served a purpose the Mauritanians did not consider, for they were killers on the loose. The consul and his bodyguard were wreaking havoc out on the dark desert plain, charging unsuspecting groups of infantry and slaughtering enemy cavalry units wherever they found them. Whenever one of his now well-lit circles of legionaries looked to be hard-pressed, the 500 killers would take the enemy attacking in the rear with a vicious charge, and then the men in the other circles would know their consul was with them as they heard the cheers of Marius, Marius, Marius coming from not far away. The strange wave attacks using Mauritanian raiding tactics had been confounding at first, far more like a huge chaotic bandit raid than anything else. But the legion's discipline and confidence in the invincibility of Gaius Marius on the battlefield turned each cluster into circles of death for the enemy. The battle raged all night, and as dawn broke, the enemy disappeared over the horizon. Roma Victrix Day 2 85 miles to Serta, Sanctuary Early that morning, after his men and horses had taken food and water, Marius quickly reorganized his legions back into their column of march. Though the legions had suffered few casualties, the men were exhausted. Of paramount concern to the consul was to reach a defensible position before making camp. He believed he could not afford to make camp on the open desert plain and become besieged. 
As they marched, the terrain shifted slightly. Instead of sand, they were now marching on ground with some vegetation, bushes, short grass, and a few bare trees, meaning there should be a source of water nearby. While it was still early in the morning, perhaps 10 a.m., the legions came to a valley which they had to cross. It was a perfect place for a trap. His scouts warned him that there were signs of recent movement in the area, footprints and tracks. Marius consulted with his officers, and confident in his legionaries' abilities, he decided to spring it. The valley was short. It would take no more than an hour for the entire column to pass through. The sheer cliffs that had created the landscape were inaccessible for his scouts, so he sent them far ahead and didn't change his line of march at all, apart from recalling Sulla's light cavalry and placing them at the head of the column. The legions were ready for anything, all eyes scanning the hills on either side, ready to drop their supplies and draw their gladii. But nothing happened. An eerie silence, apart from the sounds of thousands of sandaled feet marching in unison. The ambush came when the first half of the column was out of the valley on the flat plain beyond. Numidia was a war zone. The once most peaceful of kingdoms was now plagued by bandits and raiders. Jugurtha had hired the largest of these tribes, called the Gaetulians, as his mercenary army, some 30,000 of them. They had orders to harass and, if possible, destroy the legions. Horns blew from the steep slopes, and suddenly the legionary column was beset by tens of thousands of Gaetulian bandits. Quaestor Sulla and his lancers were in the fight of their lives, swarmed. The sudden numbers were so great that the light cavalry was forced to fight in stationary positions, unable to maneuver. Worse, the pressure from the column behind was threatening to break their line apart. For light cavalry, direct melee combat was not ideal. Their strength lay in their maneuverability, yet they were holding for now. The young men of the Lancers, in their first test fighting as a cohesive unit, and they were conducting themselves well. With the weight of so many thousands, the pressure became intense and the battle was quickly turning desperate for the legions. Relief came from a charge by the consul's killers. Marius rode up and pointed to the horizon. Sulla looked and saw two hills rising from an open plain made perfect by their imperfections, about a half mile apart. On closer inspection, one was slightly smaller and the other steeper with a large flat plateau. Marius ordered Sulla to secure and fortify the top of the smaller hill which his scouts had informed him had a spring of water large enough for the horses. After securing the hilltop, he was then to allow his men to rest all day and await the consul's signal and be ready for action after nightfall. When Sulla inquired what the signal would be, Marius said, You'll know when you hear it. The quaestor saluted and gave orders to his men. Then his lancers fought their way clear of the ambush and rode hard for the hill with the spring. In the meanwhile, Marius and his bodyguard made multiple charges into the enemy to allow the legions to keep moving and fighting, desperate to reach their hill. The combat was constant and vicious. The Gaetulians desired Jugurtha's treasure above all. Seizing that ocean of gold for themselves could make them the most famous raiders in Africa, bringing glory and honor to their way of thinking, make them all rich, and the tribe would instantly become a rising power to fear. It was right there for the taking the assault on different parts constantly threatening the integrity of the lines. Only their discipline and their consul saved them. So though it took hours to fight their way to the relative safety of the hilltop, their skill, heavy armor, and valor had resulted in the legion suffering very few casualties. Once there, Marius ordered the construction of their camp, 
fortifying the entire hilltop with walls and guard towers, along with four heavy gates. The consul walked through the camp while it was under construction, stopping and performing tasks himself when his men needed help, talking to legionaries as he passed, pausing to compliment men who had fought exceptionally well. In the early evening, the camp was complete. On the other hill, Sulla, after erecting a wall, had watered and rested the horses. He saw to it that his men had been fed, and then waited. The Gaetulians had realized that they were no match for the legions by themselves, so they divided into two groups and set a ring around the base of each of the hills, while they sent riders off into the distance to summon Jugurtha and King Bocchus. They believed they had the legions trapped and would wait for the main army. They would have to content themselves with the reward that Jugurtha would give them, and not the entire treasure. At least they would not have to risk their lives, or so they thought. A few hours passed, then a strange thing occurred. Drums and pipes were heard coming from below. From their vantage on top of the hills, the Romans witnessed the Gaetulians start a celebration. Drinking, dancing, and revelry flowed around the hills lit by huge bonfires. Yelling shouts and challenges at the Romans, taunting them and telling them that their doom drew near. There was no discipline. Even their chieftains walked around drunkenly yelling challenges. Consul Marius looked down at the enemy and grinned. He let his men sleep until a few hours after midnight, then ordered his officers to assemble the legions in silence, no assembly horns or shouts of centurions. At the same time, on the other hill, Quaestor Sulla was allowing his men to sleep in shifts, always with lookouts, guards, and a powerful force ready to respond to any attempt by the enemy to scale the hill. At this late hour, knowing that the moment would surely be drawing near, he alerted his men to wake their brothers in arms and be ready for his commands when they received Marius's signal. In the fortified camp on the other hill, Marius had given his orders. On his signal, trumpets would blare. His legionaries had been instructed to let forth their most blood-curdling war cries upon hearing them. Dawn was about to break. The sounds of the night-long siege party that surrounded them had dwindled and then disappeared entirely. The last of the Gaetulians had passed out drunk. It was time. The consul mounted his stallion at the head of his killers and nodded to his signaler. The trumpet blared, met in seconds by dozens of others from across the massive camp, followed quickly by a colossal roar from the 29,000 legionaries and auxiliaries. On the other hill, Quester Sulla and his men heard the battle cries and had no doubt they had received the signal. The four heavy gates of the camp flew open and out came Marius's enraged legions. Then... Moments later, Sulla led his lancers on a charge of their own. The Gaetulians had heard the battle cry, but they were slow and disorganized from the night's festivities, most still drunk. They were annihilated in one of the most one-sided slaughters in history. The legions cut them down and took the wealth of the tribe they had carried with them, along with their battle standards to be displayed in the consul's triumph after he had won the war. This new wealth was added to the already enormous treasure hoard. Very few Gaetulians survived. Roma Victrix Knowing another attack would be imminent, Marius decided to place the supplies, spoils, and the treasure of the vault at Muluka in the center. He then invented the Marian Square, a variant of a formation centuries old. Each side, an army of its own, ready at a moment's notice for combat. The north line of the square consisted of a single legion, screened by Sulla and all of his lancers, approximately 3,000 light cavalry. 
The east line of the square consisted of all auxiliary range units, slingers, and archers, guarded by a triple line of auxiliary light infantry, commanded by the chief justice of the legions, the praetor, Aulus Manlius, a Roman Ajax, and like Marius and Sulla, a force multiplier on any battlefield. Truly, the consul's enforcer is one of the greatest unsung warriors of all time. If his light infantry were pressed hard, the giant Aulus Manlius would step in and alleviate the pressure by slaying enemies in heaps. The south and west sides of the square each consisted of a single legion. Marius and his bodyguard of heavy cavalry stayed outside of the square to serve as a mobile strike force. Not wishing for a surprise, the scouts were sent out to their maximum range so they could bring warning of the sure-to-be-approaching army of King Bocchus and Jugurtha. The square had to move east towards Serta, so when the order was given, Praetor Aulus Manlius led the way. Day 3. Sixty miles to Serta. Sanctuary. The legions had marched through the night and most of the morning. The consul was determined to find the most advantageous terrain upon which to make camp. They were on a vast plain of desert scrub. His scouts returned, telling him that there were no hills in any direction. Worse, Numidian and Mauritanian troops thrived on this terrain. It was their element. Not wanting to push his men to exhaustion, and with no good ground to be had, he resolved to make camp. A much more compact camp, using the saved lumber to reinforce and expand the palisades along the tops of the walls. This resulted in a correspondingly shorter distance between the dozens of towers. These he packed with Roman scorpions, the long-range and deadly bolt-throwers. In the event of an attack, all the auxiliary ranged troops were to man the palisades, a wooden fortress worthy of Scipio Milianus. He allowed his exhausted scouts to rest, and instead placed Sulla's lancers in charge of gathering intelligence, instructing his quaestor to break them into 500-man units. These were largely to remain outside throughout the day and indefinitely at night, reconnaissance in force, and six mobile strike squadrons. As night approached, Marius allowed his men to rest and eat in shifts, keeping the army divided between the four gates, ready to assemble and march out at an instant's notice. In the event of an attack, the legions would form their square under the walls of their camp with the advantage of the heavy cover fire from the towers and range units. Then the heavy cavalry would join the light out on the plain and wreak havoc on the enemy in the darkness. The tension in the camp was amazingly low because of the men's faith in their abilities and the leadership of their consul. The night passed. No attack came. Day 4. 40 miles to Serta. Sanctuary. The legions had dismantled their fortress at the break of dawn and had been marching all morning in the Marian Square. The wind on the plains was cold even though the sun was shining brilliantly. Suddenly a scout from the north rode up to the consul, informing him that an army of at least 12,000 Mauritanian cavalry was quickly approaching, and that it was being led by King Bocchus himself, which meant his best men, his royal guard. In minutes, scouts from the east, west, and south returned with reports of three other full armies approaching, in total over 75,000 men. Not like a bandit raid, but organized, surely Jugurtha's work. He would have been spending his time drilling and organizing the infantry and cavalry of his allies' army. After all, they had learned the craft together from Scipio Emilianus when they had served as brothers in the Numantine War. Consul Marius called an assembly of his officers and most senior centurions. 
the legions would remain in their square and fight four separate but reinforceable battles. Jugurtha must not regain his treasure, it must be protected. However, he could not let the legions be surrounded, so he decided that the army from the north would have to be defeated away from the battlefield. This would allow the legion holding the north line of the square to detach maniples to support their comrades holding the other sides. Knowing Gaius Marius the warrior as we do, he surely would have liked nothing more than to take command and lead his bodyguard against that of King Bocchus. But as general, he needed to be close enough to give orders, and he would need his shock cavalry, along with 500 of the quester's lancers, to ensure the integrity of their lines. Sulla's composure in battle, the skill with which he carried out orders, and the way he inspired the devotion of his men had impressed Marius. So he ordered him to lead 2,500 lancers, and destroy the Mauritanian army of the north. The officers saluted smartly and moved out to give orders to their men. When Quaestor Sulla returned to his lancers, he detached the unit the consul had requested and ordered an assembly of the rest of his men. Remember, though they were trained and had equipped themselves well in the previous days and nights, because of the massive shortage of cavalry the Republic was experiencing, most of his men were little more than boys. This was their first major action against an organized enemy. He told them to remember their training, to follow their orders communicated by a signaler's trumpets, and execute them exactly. He told them that he was with them. He asked them if they were with him. The men roared their reply. He ordered his men into a line of blocks of 500, 50 across and 10 deep. He had trained the units to be able to break apart and attack in groups as small as 50 and reform all orchestrated by a symphony of different horns and bugle calls. His lancers were outnumbered at least four to one, and were lightly armored compared to the Mauritanians, who wore ringmail under their robes. And with himself leading the center block, he gave the signal. Then Nicopolis's Felix reached for his destiny. If we knew more details of the battle Sulla's lancers executed, it would be the most famous cavalry battle since mankind first took horse. Sadly, the details are lost to history. What we do know is this. King Bocchus kept his roughly 12,000 riders together in a massed rectangle, thinking their charge would overwhelm the pathetic Roman numbers once they were locked in pitched battle. A perfectly sound strategy, except Sulla declined to give him one. Instead, the squadrons of 500 men charged and retreated on select parts of the line, always moving and leading the enemy on a chase across the plain always inflicting steady casualties. Each of the five blocks could break apart, charge separately, and turn and reform in a few moments, suddenly outnumbering any enemies that broke away from their line to follow. Like hornets attacking a wild boar, killer bees on the swarm. King Bocchus's cavalry tried to come to grips with the enemy and surround them constantly, but any time a group of lancers was coming close to being flanked, another would charge in to cover their retreat. A symphony of organized violence, conducted by a military genius. The cavalry battle raged on across the plain. Miles away, back at the treasure, total war. The legions were locked in combat. The enemy armies had made contact with the three other sides of the square. The Mauritanian spearmen and cavalry were organized and giving Marius's legions the fight of their lives. Jugurtha and his screamers were plunging in and out of combat desperately trying to punch a hole in the Roman lines with their cast spears. More than anything else he was seeking Marius, but the dust and chaos of the battlefield made that impossible. 
the consul and his bodyguard were charging in support of the legions wherever they could, ensuring that his lines were secure and annihilating any group of cavalry forming to charge his lines. Jugurtha's army had the legions hard-pressed, and the battle went on late into the afternoon. In the early evening, Jugurtha received word that 10,000 fresh spearmen under the command of King Bocchus's son, the crown prince, Mastanissos, had arrived late to the battle and was about to make contact with the legions. These were the ground troops of the royal guard, crack spearmen. This force could turn the tide definitively in his favor and win the battle. So for the first time, Jugurtha dismounted and took command to fight as a foot soldier. He sent his screamers to wreak havoc where they could, with orders to find and kill Gaius Marius. Jugurtha then took his place as general in the center of the first rank of their line. At the main battle, the legions were nearing their breaking point. Outnumbered at least three to one, it was a brutal and exhausting struggle. Marius and his bodyguard could provide no relief, as Jugurtha's screamers by chance managed to quickly find him and begin their hunt, pushing the consul further and further away from his legions. The numbers and crush of battle had forced the legions back so that they had slowly become a tight, compact square around the treasure and their supplies, without the ability to maneuver or reinforce each other. Everywhere it was a life-and-death struggle. Jugurtha's ten thousand arrived at the battle as the sun had nearly set. Already the Mauritanians were setting up huge bonfires so they would have light by which to fight until the legions were destroyed. Victory was in reach, and for the first time it looked like the Romans would be vanquished. Jugurtha led the royal guard against the north line of the square. Now weakened as they had been sending reinforcements to the actively engaged other three sides all day. In addition, maniples had been rotated out of combat and placed there to rest as the fighting was much less intense, usually only involving intermittent cavalry assaults. As his army was about to make contact with the Romans, the king of Numidia called out in Latin that it was useless for the Romans to continue battle, as he had just killed Gaius Marius with his own hands. He then held up his saber, already bloody from combat. He then engaged with the fresh and most lethal troops at his disposal. His words spread, first man to man, then maniple to maniple, then legion to legion. Their consul was dead, their beloved fearless general, dead. Rome's greatest hero now walked the fields of Elysium. Gaius Marius fallen, Marius dead, morale crumbled. The lament that came in the form of a massive battle cry led by the blood-soaked giant Praetor, Aulus Manlius, shook the battlefield. Without the aura of inspiration, confidence, and endurance that Marius projected, they were lost, and the legions were about to collapse. Jugurtha had victory in his grasp, rejoicing with each slash of his saber. Rome would surely have to sue for peace after he destroyed the legions under the command of their greatest hero. They were ready to break, shatter. All could feel it, Jugurtha victorious. But then, Sulla returned to the battlefield. The Quaestor's Lancers had spent the day executing one of the most lopsided and stunning cavalry battles of all time. Outnumbered four to one, the light mobile force under Sulla's command had annihilated the heavy cavalry army led by the Royal Guard. Over the course of the entire day, they had swarmed the huge force, inflicting casualties and flitting away before they could take many themselves. Countless charges across many horizons, and slowly, methodically, they cut those numbers down until King Bocchus was forced to flee the field with his 2,000 remaining bodyguards. 
They had slain or routed 10,000 enemies and in the process had lost less than 100 of their own. Nicopolis's Felix had written his first annal in blood of what would become a chronicle of one of the greatest unsung military commanders in all of human history. King Bocchus had fled as the sun was setting. The lancers were many miles away from the main battle, with no idea of what had transpired there, except for the colossal dust cloud, a plume rising into the heavens on the horizon. He reorganized his cavalry into one dense block, looking to his wounded, leaving a small guard for the men who could no longer ride, watered their horses, and leading them from the center of his first rank, ordered his triumphant lancers back to the main army. By the time they arrived, night had fallen, the backs of the enemy clearly visible in the light of the huge bonfires the Mortanians had lit, the legions beyond being brutally pressed by Jugurtha's elite ten thousand, so many. Sulla took a moment to order that the formation assume a long rounded rectangle, and then signaled for a charge. The lancers galloped across the cold desert landscape, and when they were close, tribunes ordered spears, which were lowered in unison, and they crashed into the completely unsuspecting rear of Jugurtha's men. The spearmen of the royal guard caught between the legions and the lancers were annihilated in that first charge. After that first crushing impact, the lancers broke apart into fifty-man wolf packs who hunted their prey in the moonlight. Spathas and their mounts splattered with enemy blood. Jugurtha barely managed to cut his way free to a small group of his screamers who had been waiting for him and mounted his horse, only to be immediately charged by the unit led by Sulla himself. They were surrounded, and it was only because of the sacrifice of all of his most loyal men that Jugurtha alone was able to escape, hotly pursued by another pack of lancers. At that moment, the line of the auxiliary light infantry was being brutally assaulted by the Mauritanian army of the east, all heavy spearmen. Worse, the lines of auxiliary archers and slingers that they protected had run critically low on arrows and shot. What had once been a coordinated deadly rain of fire was now a sporadic trickle. Fighting in the front line, the praetor Aulus Manlius was delivering justice with his massive gladius, the bulwark of the line. Yet even with his awesome presence, his eastern army began wavering. It was at this critical moment that news reached him that the consul had fallen. His friend, his mentor, his Patronus was dead. Aulus Manlius let out a colossal war cry, a dirge of Vertus, from one exceptional warrior to another, followed by all of his men, thousands, and he then offered a blood sacrifice to the gods by slaying the enemies around him, inspiring his men to do the same. But the odds had become impossible. With the other lines fully engaged and no hope of reinforcement, his light infantry was incapable of holding against heavy spearmen, and he looked up to see the killers charging in and shredding the enemy to pieces. Jugurtha had lied. Marius and his men fought their way through the screamers, which had kept them occupied through the evening and into the night. They had been hunted across the horizon by experts, able to engage with their deadly throwing spears and dart away on their swift mounts before their slower and less nimble heavy chargers could make contact. Yet when the final trap was sprung, the Numidians, perhaps out of spears, engaged in melee combat, and the killers crushed them. The hunt had taken them many miles away from the battle, and the consul must have wished to gallop back to his legions, but concerned for the well-being of his horses, it was a measured rush. Before they even reached the battle at the treasure, they ran into the enemy reserve cavalry and slew them all in the light of the bonfires. Saving his horse's stamina paid off, 
for when they were in sight of the legions, that one epic charge was delivered with such kinetic force that it broke the Mauritanian army of the east completely. And after the rout was complete, Marius rode up to Aulus Manlius, the only man of his line who had not dropped with exhaustion, and in the distance he heard the legions, the rest of his army, chanting, Salah, 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 and the consul liked this not at all. The legions were victorious, and their enemy vanquished or fled. Romans all over the battlefield fell, passed out as the adrenaline of battle that had kept them fighting all day and deep into the night left their systems. In the morning, from horizon to horizon, lay a scene of horror. The ancient historian Solace words, The broad plain presented a ghastly spectacle of flight and pursuit, slaughter and capture. Horses and men were thrown down. Many of the wounded, without the strength to escape or the patience to lie still, struggled to get up only to collapse immediately. As far as the eye could reach, the battlefield was strewn with weapons, armor, and corpses, with patches of blood-stained earth showing between them. It must have been a bitter disappointment for Jugurtha as he rode somewhere alone in the wilderness. He had nearly won the battle. In defeat, he had not only lost his best men, but any hope of ever reacquiring the bulk of his treasury. Victory had been a mere moment away, but for the charge of Sulla's lancers. And in the morning, as the battered legions gathered their dead and wounded, then assembled into the Marian Square for their final march to Serta, sanctuary, Nicopolis's Felix was universally hailed as the greatest warrior in the army of Gaius Marius. Roma Victrix now the original script of So Seductive came to a suave close about here. However, I have mentioned the eloquence, wit, charm, and charisma of Lucius Cornelius Sulla at length, and what kind of lore master would it be if I didn't let you experience it? So, four days after the epic Second Battle of Serta, the Knights of the Bandits, the legions were safely lodged in their winter quarters, their sanctuary, the city of Serta. At midday, envoys from King Bocchus of Mauritania arrived, asking Consul Marius to send two men of rank he trusted completely to discuss matters of mutual interest and utmost secrecy. Understanding that the soundly whipped Bocchus would be seeking at the very least a truce, he considered who to send. He was definitely bothered by the loss of the spotlight to his noble quaestor. Eager to have him gone for a time, he detailed Sulla and the praetor Aulus Manlius to keep an eye on the young hero of the legions and look out for his interests. Yet as they made the journey across the plains to distant Mauritania, Sulla befriended Marius's giant enforcer, a man who outranked him, constantly engaging him in conversation, revealing the depths of his knowledge in long and detailed answers to their discussions, so thorough, so eloquent, that Manlius would often just have to nod because there was nothing left to say. Sulla was right about everything. By the time they reached the palace of King Bocchus in the capital city of Volubilis, Aulus Manlius was used to letting Sulla do the talking. Thus, when they entered the throne room in their polished and most glorious sets of battle armor, Sulla spoke for Rome. His words, King Bocchus, it gives us much joy that the gods have led you, so great a man, at last to prefer peace to war, to refuse to contaminate yourself, one of the best of men by association with Jugurtha, the very worst, and at the same time to relieve us of the bitter necessity of meting out the same treatment to your errors as to his crimes, 
I may add that the Roman people from the beginning of their rule have preferred to seek friends rather than slaves, and have thought it safer to govern by consent than by compulsion. For you indeed, no friendship is more desirable than ours. First, because we are at a distance from you, a condition which offers less friction than if we were near at hand, with no less power. And secondly, because we already have more than enough subjects, while neither we nor anyone else ever had friends enough. I only wish that you had felt thus disposed from the first. In that event, the favors by which this time you would have received from the Roman people would far outnumber the misfortunes you have suffered. But since fortune has chief control of human destiny, and since it seems to have been her pleasure that you should experience both our power and our kindness, now make haste that she allows it, and follow the course which you have begun. You have many good opportunities easily to atone for your mistakes by good offices. Finally, let this thought sink into your heart, that the Roman people have never been outdone in kindness. Its prowess in war you know by experience. Sulla concluded and gave the king his most winning smile. He had just told King Bocchus, with power of life or death over all he surveyed, that he had been a naughty boy and Rome had spanked him. After all, it was Sulla himself who had driven him from the battlefield, and that he definitely did not want Rome as his enemy. As his translator translated, the king glared at them as the memory of his humiliating defeat at the hands of this handsome young officer standing before him played through his mind. And the praetor, Aulus Manlius, the Ajax of the late Republic, ever so slowly moved his hand towards the hilt of his gladius. At that moment, back in Rome, news of the legion's triumph at the second battle of Serta reached the city. The streets were abuzz with Sulla's name, calling for him to be named Hero of the Republic. And when the news reached the opulent villas on the lofty heights of the Seven Hills, the most powerful and cunning optimates began to contemplate the possibility that if the plebs had indeed found their Achilles in Gaius Marius, perhaps they had found their Hector. Thank you for listening to Deep into History. I hope you enjoyed Versus Origins, so seductive. Please tell your friends about the show and leave a review wherever you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at Deep into History and get your daily blast from the past, or just chat. And as always, my dear friend, take care of yourself. I truly look forward to the next time. We go deep.